Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50 is the text in front of us this morning. I have titled the message this morning, A Portrait of a Growing Disciple. A Portrait of a Growing Disciple. And uh, the reason that I have titled the message such is because I mentioned several weeks back that everything that takes place after Mark chapter 8, verse 34, let me just let your minds catalog back there, that is where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Everything that follows those words in Mark 8, verse 34, through the end of the chapter, and on through the end of chapter 9, is really just an extended commentary on what that means. What does it mean to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus has been laboring for a chapter and a half now that we might clearly see that. And we've seen already that Jesus ups the ante every time he speaks about his death and his resurrection. He's done it twice now. He did it right back in chapter 8, verse 31, 32 uh, there. And, and then he tells his disciples, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and, and, and do so. And then Jesus, again, foretold of his death and his resurrection in chapter 9. And Jesus ups the ante uh, by telling his disciples, instructing his disciples, what greatness in the kingdom really looks like. The disciples had an improper understanding of greatness. They thought to be great means to surge ahead. They thought to be great means to look out for number one. They thought to be great means to clamor and to claw and to climb your way to the top. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, you're last. The way up is down. Humble yourself. We'll see Jesus foretell his death a third time in chapter 10. We'll be there shortly in a couple of weeks. But what we're looking at this morning is, again, extended commentary as to what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. With that being said, let me encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability as we read God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50, and these are the words that he pens. John said to him, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown or hurled into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell in the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But what if the salt has lost its saltiness? How will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Four snapshots this morning. That's what you've got on your outline. I would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better. You'll retain better if you do. Four snapshots. Uh, raise your hand if you had a, a Polaroid camera uh, at some point in your life. Uh-huh. You push the button and out comes the picture. Uh, you don't even need to go to Walmart and stand in the line. You don't need to go to Target and the one hour developing. You get it right there. It's instant. Right? It's a snapshot. It's an instant picture here. Well, what I want to give you this morning are four snapshots, four portraits, so to speak, of what a growing disciple looks like. Further commentary on what it means to take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus. And number one on your outline, write this down if you're taking notes, is this, be growing in patience. Be growing in patience. Now, not every Sunday can I come up with four P's, but I got four P's for you this morning, okay? And uh, I'll give you the other three here in just a minute. But patience may be a little bit of a... Let me just go ahead and tell you, I couldn't think of a better word, all right? So write this out next to it. Write forbearance or write graciousness, okay? Those would be some synonyms that, that are in my mind as I'm thinking about these verses here, verses 38 through 41. We want to be growing in patience as believers, forbearing with one another, gracious with one another, all right? That's the idea. Uh, let me draw your attention back to verses 38 through 41 in your Bible there. Look there. John said to him, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone... We witnessed someone casting out demons in your name. And, and here's what we tried to do, Jesus. We tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. He wasn't with us. He wasn't of our ranks. He was other. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name, your translation may say, one who does a miracle in my name will soon be afterward to speak evil of me. He won't be able to. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's what I want you to see here, okay? Main point, be growing in patience, be growing in forbearance, be growing in a, in a gracious disposition toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe a sub, a sub point here if you want to write this down. Don't be critical of others whose methods are different but whose master is the same. Don't be critical of others whose methods may differ from your own. They don't do things like you do them. They don't think quite like you think. Maybe they don't subscribe to your theology lock, stock, and barrel. We're not to be critical of those whose methods are a bit different, but whose master is the same. You see, being in Jesus' inner circle was an undoubted privilege for the disciples, but it also brought with it the temptation to foster an elitist mentality. We are the best. We are better. We are the cream of the crop. We are the, the top. You see, from the vantage point of the front or the top, it can be easy to look back and look down on others as being inferior or less significant. And that's exactly what we see taking place in the text here in front of us. You see, the disciples grew accustomed to thinking of spiritual leadership in terms of exclusivity. 
We are Jesus' leaders. We work on behalf of Jesus. We are his spokesmen. That's the attitude here. It's the attitude that we see in the text. It's the attitude that we see specifically in the words of John. And this isn't the first time that we've seen John's elitist attitude spill over here. Let me pause for just a second and say John's attitude is just representative of the rest of the disciples. Though John is the one speaking in the text here, uh, the rest of the disciples share the attitude that comes billowing forth out of John's mouth. And I would tell you this as well, we are the disciples. We struggle in the exact same way that we'll see the disciples struggling in here. John's attitude toward the individual in verse 38 is similarly seen when he and James desired to call fire down on the inhospitable Samaritans who didn't receive Jesus back in Luke's gospel chapter 9. Remember, you have these these uh, inhospitable, we're going to get that word, inhospitable Samaritans. And then you got uh, James and John here. It's like, well, Jesus, you know, can we rain down fire on them? And Jesus says, says, no, guys, that's the wrong attitude. We see the same attitude again when James uh, asks to sit at the right hand and the left hand uh, of Christ in glory. It's this elitist mentality. It's like Jesus' message in the preceding text about who is the greatest went in one ear and right out the other. You see, instead of of the disciples seeing their apostolic status as a call to humility and service, a life of sacrifice, instead, John regarded his status as an entitlement of privilege and exclusion. Jesus' disciples, like we often do, had an inflated view of their own self-importance. That stings, doesn't it? We all do. Each and every one of us, without exception, at times have an inflated view of our own self-importance. Now, it's interesting to note here that this is the only remark that's attributed to the Apostle John in all of the Synoptic Gospels. This is the only thing that is specifically attributed to John. And what was the issue here? Well, apparently, a a nameless individual in verse 38 who who was a disciple or who was a follower, remember, disciple can be capital D as in in the 12, or disciple can just be used in a more generic uh, sense as follower of Christ. And so apparently here in verse 38, we have a disciple, a follower of Christ, who was not one of the 12, not one of the privileged 12. You see, this makes sense out of the statement, because he was not following us. That rubbed the disciples a bit the wrong way here. Remember, Jesus had called the twelve to himself, and he had given them authority to cast out demons. But here is a guy, not one of the esteemed twelve, who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. I don't think it was the misuse of Jesus' name uh, like we see in the the sons of Sceva. If you want to go back and reference that this week, write Acts chapter 19 down in your margin there. There was a misuse of Jesus' name. But it wasn't the misuse of Jesus' name here that ruffled the disciples' feathers. Rather, it was this man's unauthorized, or so they thought, unauthorized use of Jesus' name. That's what bothered them. What bothered them is that this guy didn't have permission, all right? But what 
John regarded as an act of zeal, stopping this man was actually a display of jealousy. It probably made the disciples, on whose behalf again John is speaking, a little bit frustrated that this particular individual was seemingly successful in casting out demons in Jesus' name when they had just previously failed to do so. If I may, let me try and interpret what John is is saying here in verse 38. I think John is saying this. Jesus, we don't know who this guy is. We don't know where he came from or what he thinks he's doing. But we want you to know that we put a stop to his foolishness. I think that's kind of some of the sentiment in John's words here. It almost sounds as if John is expecting a pat on the back from Jesus for his zealous act. Like, Jesus, tell me I did a good job. I just shut that guy down. I can imagine a brief silence here and the anticipation of an attaboy, but Jesus' response was quite the opposite, was it not? Not the response they were anticipating. Look at verse 39. Jesus tells the disciples, stop hindering this individual. Why? What's the rationale? What's What's the reasoning that Jesus gives as to why the disciples should stop hindering this individual? Well, Jesus says, because no one who does a mighty work, dunamai, in my name, and then immediately turns around, will publicly speak evil of me. Don't don't hinder him. You see, Jesus' acceptance of this individual was reinforced by the maxim, whoever is not against us is for us. And against us and for us leave absolutely no room for neutrality. Jesus looks at the guy and says, hey, He's on the same team. He's he's batting for the same team here. He's not against us. He's for us. He's acting against the kingdom of Satan and acting for us. And he can't work against us and work for us at the same time. You see, though this man didn't follow Jesus in exactly the same way as the twelve, he nevertheless followed Jesus. And he stood against Satan. We don't know a lot about this individual. We need to be careful of just massively reading into the text here. Uh, But we know that he was a follower of Jesus. And that he was for him, not against him. But this was tough for the the apostles who thought, again, they were alone. They, They were privileged exclusively to work with and to work for Jesus. They had a hard time considering that service to Jesus could be broader than their own efforts. Again, they had an inflated view of their own self-importance. Neither did they consider that Jesus would accept and use the service of someone who wasn't just like them. In other words, we are the die. We are the mold. And everything that takes place in service for Jesus, anyone who speaks on behalf of Jesus, must look just like me. Must serve just like me. The disciples could not fathom that Jesus would use someone who wasn't just like them, someone who thought differently than they thought and whose methods were different than their own. You see, when it comes to service to God and service for God, brothers and sisters, we do not have a corner on the market. We certainly don't. God is bigger than our ministries. God is bigger than our denominations. God is bigger than our organizations. God is bigger than our affiliations. The the criterion for ministry is not style or tradition or denomination, but rather Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified. That's what we ought to celebrate. 
Remember what, what, uh, what Paul said in, in Philippians? He said, you know, I, I care not if, if, if the name of Christ is even preached from false pretense. All I care about is that the name of Jesus is exalted, and in that I'll glory. We're to rejoice in this. Instead of being overzealous and even at times jealous of others spiritually, and oh, Christians, we can be jealous spiritually. But instead of being overzealous and jealous, we're to be patient, gracious, supportive of others. We need to show deference and humility to others. We need to be able to distinguish between primary and secondary issues. The church doesn't need to divide over issues of preference, though it has multiple times throughout redemptive history. We need to uphold the gospel with absolute tenacity, but we need to realize that God is working in and through others who may even think a bit differently than we do theologically. You see, the disciples' attitude had become uh, exclusive, elitist, narrow, and restrictive. They, they had signed on to thinking like this. Believe as I believe, and, and no less, that I am right, and no one else confess. Feel as I feel and think as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look and do as I do and then and only then will I fellowship with you. Now, we got to be very careful here. And I I need to make some some clear distinctions in, in what I've already said. Jesus is not condoning ecumenicalism. That's a 16-cylinder word that just simply means the linking of arms across the board, striving for universal Christian unity. Jesus never advocated for that. Jesus isn't advocating that we overlook and link arms with those who teach false doctrine or who outright teach a false doctrine. As a matter of fact, we are called to expose individuals, groups, organizations who preach a false gospel. What we believe is very important. Jesus certainly isn't saying that it, that it doesn't matter what we believe here. He's not saying that, that all faiths are, are equally valid or that there are many ways to God. He's not saying that doctrine isn't important, so let's just forget about all the particulars uh, and, and kumbaya. That would be a nonsensical interpretation of what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples here. But we do, on the other hand, need to resist the temptation to be hypercritical of other individuals, churches, or denominations who uphold the gospel. That's the, that's the linchpin there, who uphold the gospel, all right, but may differ from us in some secondary issues, whose master is the same, but whose methods may be a bit different or who may even be a bit different than us theologically in secondary issues. Okay? The second thing I want you to notice here under this point is service rendered to Christ, even if it seems less significant, is rewarded by him. Look at verse 41 there. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I mean, Jesus is broadening his words uh, in verses 39 and 40 right here to include activity besides casting out demons. It's not just the, who, those who, who, who do the, the big things, the, the mighty works. 
but those who serve Christ in much smaller, seemingly less significant ways will not be overlooked by Christ. Even one who performs the smallest act of hospitality in Jesus' name, such as giving a cup of water to someone because he belongs or because she belongs to Christ, will be rewarded. I love what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. The writer of Hebrews says that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The love that you show for his name in serving the saints. Any service for Christ, however small, has upon it the Lord's blessing. Remember that when you serve God's people in ways that you might think are insignificant, God thinks otherwise. You know, most churches, our church included, is, is just a church full of just ordinary people. We're, we're just a bunch we, me, we're just a bunch of ordinary people who serve in, in ways that are sometimes seen and sometimes not seen. Most of the serving that goes on in this church is not recognized in the lights. I mean, think about it here. Th- think about how we give cups of water, so to speak, here. Oh, you have those that come early and stay late. Those who unlock the doors, turn on the lights, make the coffee, set up rooms for ministry, put carpet down, take carpet up, put carpet down, take carpet up, put carpet down, take carpet up. Seems like there's always something to put carpet down in the gym for, to take it back up. If you've never been a part of that team, I would encourage you to do so. It's not fun, but it has to be done, right? Thankful for those people who who cheerfully serve in that way. People who clean up messes repair things, build things, keep our building looking very nice inside and out. Those who clean toilets, replace light bulbs, change diapers, cook meals, visit people in the hospital and in care facilities. Those of you who listen, those who shed a tear of shared grief with the hurting, those who encourage the discouraged, those who pray for those in time of need. Those who prepare for Sunday school, decorate for vacation Bible school, lead small groups, reconcile the books, collect shingles off the roof after a storm, drive buses, trim the hedges, thank you sisters, and serve in a myriad of other ways that never get publicly recognized, but friends, God sees it all. I love that. What are you doing? How are you serving? I used to always encourage our previous congregation to come not only as consumers to church. Don't come as a consumer only on Sunday mornings. Don't come as a consumer only to Sunday school or to small group or to any other time that we gather. Come as both a consumer and a contributor. How can you serve? How can you use your God-given giftedness for the good of the whole? Bless those of you who give cups of water in service to the body of Christ. Well, number two, snapshot number two is this. Write this down. Be growing in purity. Be growing in purity. Let me draw your attention to verses 42 through 49 here. Look at your Bible. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Be growing in purity. Okay, that's the, that's the main point there. Maybe you'll write this sub-point below it. Be careful. Be careful that you don't cause others to sin. All right? Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great, great, it's where we get our English word mega, megos is the Greek word there, a megos millstone, a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown or hurled into the sea. Now, little ones here is not a reference to children. I mean, Jesus has, has just held up a child in our text last week, presumably even one of Peter's children. But little ones here is not a reference to a physical child. Jesus turns his attention from an actual child, back in verse 36, to that of a child in Christ. And this is likely prompted by John's comment about the individual casting out demons, who was not an apostle, but who was indeed a child of God. He was a disciple, this unnamed individual casting out demons. And so in this case, the, the less developed faith of, of this man, we assume here, this individual casting out a demon, or anyone else who acts in Jesus' name should be encouraged rather than ruined by harsh criticism or exclusive bias. I mean, Jesus' words here were weighty to his disciples, who I think just were ready for a response of attaboy about what they had done. But Jesus responds and he says, if you hinder another child of God, if you cause another child of God to stumble, to fall, to sin, it would be better that you had a great millstone tied around your neck and you were hurled into depthy waters. Jesus sternly warned that anyone who would turn somebody away from believing in him would, would be punished. And the punishment for such an offense is so severe that it would be better to be drowned in the sea than to cause one of these little ones to be hindered. Now, it's uh, important that you know here there were two types of millstones in ancient Palestine. One was a small hand mill. Uh, every home would have ha had one of these, and it was used to, to grind up things typically in the preparation of food. Uh, so you had a little hand mill there. Uh, and then you had another mill that was so large that it took a donkey to turn it. Uh, and that's the mill that Jesus speaks about here in our text. To be thrown in the sea and to be attached to this massive weight meant certain death. As a matter of fact, this was actually a form of punishment in Rome and Palestine in Jesus' day. So uh, people would have been accustomed to even seeing this as a form of punishment at times. And so I was thinking this week, well, how, how does this apply to us? Okay, How does this apply to us today? Let me give, let me give you just one way. Uh, so we can keep the train moving here. Don't use your liberties that might cause another Christian to stumble as a liberty. Don't use your liberties in a way that might cause another Christian to stumble. And I'm convinced, and I am included here, this is a category that we don't think in often enough. We think, well, oh, I, that's, I have this liberty. I have this right. What, what I'm doing is, 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 not a, is not explicitly prohibited in Scripture, and, and so I have this liberty. And I don't think we think often enough in the category of, 
of Christian liberties and how it might cause others to stumble. What may be acceptable to you and may not violate your conscience may well cause another Christian to stumble. So be very careful. This is one of those opportunities where you, again, Philippians chapter 2, have the ability to think not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others as being greater than yourself. Be careful who you are around. Be careful who's in your presence. Be careful where you go. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you laugh at. We'll talk about all those things here in just a second. Be careful that your use of liberty does not cause another Christian, a weaker brother or sister, to stumble. Second here, I want you to notice radical action is necessary to deal with our own sin. Not only do we need to be careful that we don't cause someone else to stumble, but radical action is necessary to deal with our own sin. Not only can we, by our behavior, cause others to stumble, but we can be the cause of our own stumbling as well. Uh, several times in the text here, Jesus uses the Greek word skandalizo, uh, which is translated causes one to sin. Skandalizo causes one to sin. We see it once in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin. And then we see it once in verse 43, 45, and 47. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin. Now, uh, you may be able to hear an English word there in the Greek word, scandalizo. It's the word scandalous. You see, sin, whatever form it's in, is always scandalous. Sin is scandalous. The word scandalizo carries the idea of entrapping or tripping up or causing to stumble. It literally refers to a, to a bait stick that holds a trap open uh, before it closes. Uh, you've seen it before. An unsuspecting critter walks up to the trap and he removes the bait from the stick and the door springs shut. Uh, it entraps him. This is the picture that Paul paints for us in Galatians 6.1 when he refers to anyone who is, quote, caught in sin. If your brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You see, we should view the temptation to sin like bait. As a matter of fact, James reminds us uh, each person is tempted and lured, James says, when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, sin looks enticing. It's baiting, but it's always a trap. It's a scandalizo. When you're lured into the trap by temptation and you take the bait, you get caught in the bondage of sin. And so notice here that Jesus addresses some parts of our body in the text here. Jesus addresses our hands, he addresses our feet, and he addresses our eyes. Why do you suppose Jesus addresses those particular parts of the body? Well, I would submit to you that the reason Jesus uh, points out here and addresses the hands, the feet, and the eyes is because those three parts of the body encompass the totality or the entirety of life. You see, our hands speak about the things that we do. Our feet speaks to the places that we go. And our eyes speak about what we see. You know, I think uh, for some of us it would be good to go back to the uh, young child's song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Before I say anything else here, if uh, you're looking at your Bible, uh, you may have already noticed this, but you may be asking yourself the question, where in the world are verses 44 and 46? Check that out. Yeah? Notice that? 
Where is verse 44 and 46? Well, that's a great question. Verses 44 and 46 are omitted from most of our translations because they're not included in the most reliable and the oldest manuscripts. And so we don't see them in our modern translations. Having said that, verse 44 and 46 uh, in some of those uh, translations are identical to verse 48. So look at your Bible there. Verse 48 reads, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that's what verse 44 and 46 say. It's, it's uh, omitted uh, for repetition here, and its removal does not weaken or detract from the text in any way, shape, or form. But uh, that's the answer to where those two verses are. Now, it's important for us to note here that Jesus is teaching in this particular pericope, this particular section okay, of text, He's teaching with hyperbole, okay? It's a figure of speech, uses exaggeration. Jesus is teaching with hyperbole here as a figure of speech to gain our attention. While he isn't speaking literally in verses 43 through 48, he certainly is speaking radically. And the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, his his instructions should not be in any way, shape, or form ignored. Jesus is speaking using exaggeration, but we should not ignore his instructions. These verses aren't suggesting that we should fight sin by literally cutting off our hands and our feet and gouging out our eyes. I'm confident that if we only had left hands, left feet, and left eyes, as Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes, we would certainly still find very capable ways of sinning. Remember, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin. He doesn't give us the right or the left here, but if that were the case and our right hand, our right foot, and our right eye were all removed, we could still find very capable ways of sinning. What these verses are saying is that purity in both action and thought are massively important. So important that it's worth sacrificing some otherwise good things if those otherwise good things lead us into sin. And so what Jesus is teaching here is he's teaching us a ruthless self-denial. A ruthless self-denial. It's what the old dead guys used to refer to as the mortification of sin. The mortification of the flesh just means to to put it to death, to kill it. Matter of fact, some of the old dead guys used to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Put it to death. Have a bulldog tenacity when it comes to dealing with your sin. Anything that stands between us and Jesus must be radically amputated. We must deal radically and severely with our sin. We can't pamper our sin, flirt with our sin, nibble around the edges of our sin. We must hate it, crush it, cut it out, put it to death. You see, the generation that we live in today, the culture that we live in today, does not view sin as a killer. And so we try to treat sin instead of condemning it and repenting of it. Friends, sin cannot be managed. Don't don't ever think that you can manage your sin. Sin cannot be managed. It must be put to death. Sin entangles, it ensnares, and it kills. Sooner or later, mark this down, sooner or later, your sin will find you out. It must be killed. Billy Sunday once said the reason so many Christians fall into sin is because they treat sin like strawberries and cream rather than a rattlesnake. 
Think about that for a second. We treat sin like strawberries and cream rather than a rattlesnake. We, we, we treat it like a domesticated house cat instead of a lion. And so we don't flee. We try and see as close as, uh, how close we can get. And, and we, we try to reach out. And if it'll let us, we'll even try to, try to pet the lion. And then we wonder why we get mauled and mutilated by sin. Well, the reason that we get eaten alive so often by sin is because we spend way too much time cozying up next to the kitten instead of putting sin to death. Friends, we need to make war on our sin. Again, the 17th century Puritan John Owen said, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Not just I tried that once or I did that last week. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. I want you to notice a couple of things here about putting your sin to death. There's a cost associated with dealing radically with your sin. There's a cost associated to dealing radically with your sin, losing a right hand or a right foot or a right eye reveals that dealing with sin is costly. We must remove those things from ourselves, uh, from our lives that tempt us, whether people or places or things. It may cost you relationships to deal radically with your sin. It may cost you your worldly reputation to deal radically with your sin. It may cost you loneliness. You may feel like you're all alone. It may cost you uh, having the best with your name in the spotlight, the promotion in your job. But be assured, it will cost you to deal radically with your sin. It's so easy to jump in the, the, the cultural stream and to float, float downstream, to just do what the world does, think like the world thinks, speak like the world thinks, act like the world acts. It's very difficult, on the other hand, to turn around and to try to, try to swim upstream against the current. And so let me ask you, what's your pursuit of holiness costing you? How radically are you dealing with your sin? Think about the television you watch, the networks that you have pushed into your home at the access of a push of a button. Think about the internet uh, and the places that you frequent on the internet. What movies will you permit yourself to see? You ever walked out of a movie because your spirit was quenched? What about your relationships? Are they moving you toward holiness or away from holiness? Single people, let, let me beg you, uh, don't, don't try to missionary date. Okay? D don't try to missionary date. As far as influence is concerned, it's a whole lot easier for you to be pulled in the pool than it is for you to try to pull somebody out. Pray for a non-believer, cover them in prayer, preach the gospel, but don't date them to try to convert them, or get them converted, rather. It's not wise. I want to be careful that I don't pass along legalistic standards here, but some of us need to do some radical amputating in some of these areas. Consider this principle. I'll never forget this. The, the gentleman that led me to Christ my freshman year of college told me this. He said, Eric, rules put on you by you is wisdom. Rules put on you by others is legalism. Rules put on you by you is wisdom. You need to know yourself. Know your particular areas of temptation. Know where you're weak. Satan certainly knows where you're weak. And so set up boundaries 
So you don't walk to the edge of the cliff and see how close you get, or you don't try to reach out and pet the kitty and get mauled. Rules put on you by you is wisdom. But there's a cost associated to dealing radically with your sin. There's a pain associated uh, to dealing radically with your sin as well. You know, oftentimes we temporarily enjoy our sin, but Jesus tells us to get rid of it and any feeling to the contrary. Okay? Sanctification can be painful. We see the imagery of pruning all throughout the Bible, and pruning is painful. Rest assured, sometimes it hurts, but it's meant to produce growth and holiness. Better your blood on the ground than your life in the rubbish heap. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. There's a pain associated uh, with dealing radically with your sin. And then there's consequences associated uh, with dealing radically with your sin. I think one of the best ways to practically put your sin to death in this life is to recall often how extravagant a price has been paid in order to deliver you from the bondage of sin and death. Think often about the price that was paid to deliver you from the bondage of sin and death. There's a great aid to holiness there. For the Christian, there should be no greater stimulus and incentive to kill our sin than to be reminded that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame for us in order that we, the object of his saving grace, might be delivered from the curse of sin and all of its penalty. Look at verse 48. We're going to move relatively quickly here. Don't trade temporal pleasure for eternal punishment. Think about growing in purity here. Don't trade temporal pleasure for eternal punishment. Look at what Jesus says here as he uh, uh, speaks in verses 43, 45, and 47. He says, it would be better for your life to be crippled. It would be better for your life to be lame. It would be better that you have one eye than to go into hell able-bodied, full-bodied. And then he goes on in verse 48 and he says, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Friends, these are solemn words. These are solemn words. You know, it may seem remarkable, but no Bible spokesman places more stress on hell as the final consequence of God's justice and his condemnation for sin than Jesus does. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus describes hell as the great chasm over which none of us may cross. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one entering into his presence and the other banished into eternal fire. Jesus doesn't only reference hell, but he describes it in great detail. He says that it's a place of eternal punishment. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It's a place where we see here, worm does not die where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. It is a place from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. Jesus calls this a place of outer darkness and a prison. Jesus, in our text, compares hell to Gehenna, which was the the trash heap, the trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem, where dead bodies and trash were continually burned in smoldering fires. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven, and he describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. And it's a doctrine that does not get preached on near enough. 
For believers here, Jesus is saying it's better to go through life as a spiritual amputee with one eye, with one hand, with, with one foot, than to have our unfortified, undisciplined lives exposed before the judgment seat chastening. And for Christians here, we're not talking about the loss of salvation, but we certainly are talking about the loss of reward. It's better to deal ruthlessly with our sin today and have our, than to have our lustful hearts exposed on the day of days. Don't forget that, that while we don't fear eternal judgment, we will have to give an account for our lives. That should shape our thoughts and our actions and our desires. For unbelievers, Jesus is warning here about the certainty of eternal punishment. Again, what does it profit the world or man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if you play with fire now, you'll pay with fire later. For the unbeliever, this is a stern warning not to exchange what is eternal, namely your soul, for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Remember, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in What are we to make of this language about being salted with fire in verse 49? Jesus concludes his lesson here on humility by reminding his disciples that everyone, that's all-inclusive, that's expansive there, everyone will be salted by fire. What are we to make of this? What does it mean? Well, let me submit to you that there's a fire that's penal and there's a fire that's purifying. And there's a fire that's penal, it's condemnation fire, and there's a fire that's purifying, sanctifying. Okay? Either a person will exercise self-discipline of faith in Christ or he or she will suffer eternal punishment in hell. That's penal fire. Or a man or a woman, young child, will repent, believe, and will live uh, a, a self-denying life. And there we will be purified by fire as we grow. The process of sanctification Number three, write this down. Be growing in potency. Potency. Now look at verse 50a there. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Jesus encourages us here. Salt is good. Salt is good. Jesus oftentimes took things that were very common uh, in his day and created a spiritual word picture that would stick in the minds of his hearers. And see, salt and saltiness are just one such example. Salt was a very valuable resource in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, Roman soldiers were oftentimes paid a portion of their wages in salt. It was called a thalarium. That's where we get our word salary. Okay? But salt wasn't just a way to pay a wage. Before Maytag, before Whirlpool, before Frigidaire or LG or GE ever came on the scene, salt was a means for keeping food from going bad. It was a preservative or a curing agent. It was a flavor enhancer. Salt was used as a thirst generator, as a way of healing wounds. And Christians are to be all of these things. You see, as believers, our lives are to act as a, a, a preservative from corruption, they are to point to the ultimate cure, capital C, for the disease of sin. Our lives are to add zest or flavor to life. Our lives should make others thirsty. Our lives should bring healing to the broken in this world. Jesus says of believers, you are the salt of the earth, back in Matthew chapter 5. 
But just as salt can lose its saltiness or become diluted, salt can't just lose its saltiness, but it can become diluted with other things so that it's no longer salty. And in doing so, it becomes worthless. Well, so can the life of a Christian. Our lives can become diluted. We can't lose our salvation if we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but we certainly can have lives that are diluted and that can become a bit indistinguishable from the rest of the world. In other words, you can lose your Christian influence. You can't lose your salvation, but you can certainly lose your Christian influence. You could use your witness. We lose our saltiness when we stop reading God's word, when we stop memorizing God's word, when we stop meditating on on scripture, when we stop communing with God in prayer, when we stop gathering together with God's people for worship. We lose our saltiness when we cherish pet sins, when we fail to set our minds on things above, when we are content to live largely unknown and unaccountable lives. We lose our saltiness when we watch what the world watches, laugh at what the world laughs at, handles what the world handles, thinks about what the world thinks about, and runs after the things that the world runs after. How distinguishable is your life? Well, I'll tell you how salty your life is then. How distinguishable are our lives from the world? But friends, if our saltiness has become diluted, we can again become potent If sin is the cause of Christians losing their saltiness, then repentance can and will make them salty again. That would be a good place for a hallelujah or praise God, right? Because at times we all have diluted lives, right? And we need to come in repentance. We can be made salty again. So how salty are you? Are you living a lifestyle of repentance? What effect is your life having on your sphere of influence? Brothers and sisters, I want you to be growing in Christ-like potency. Give me 30 seconds of your attention for point four here. Be growing in peacemaking. Be growing in peacemaking. Look at this last phrase here. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. It's very fitting here that Jesus concludes this section of his teaching by encouraging his disciples to remain salty, first of all, and then to strive for peace with one another. This is just another way of what Jesus has already said, uh, namely, lose your self-ambition and find joy, rather, in serving God and serving others. Stop trying to claw your way to the top, stop trying to be number one, look out for number one, figure out who's the greatest, lose yourself in, in the joy of pleasing Christ and the joy of serving others. Live at peace with one another means that I'm not seeking self-greatness or striving for preeminence, but rather I'm clothing myself with humility and I'm thinking to the interest of others as being greater than myself. We won't always agree, right? That's why I need to go back to point number one. I need to be growing in patience, patience and loving, forbearance, graciousness toward other people. We won't always agree. Sometimes we'll even sin against each other. But we must make it our aim, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with all men. And by doing so, we make a great representation and reflection of Christ. Brothers and sisters, be patient, be, be pure, uh, be potent, and be peacemaking. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's challenging and convicting, that, it, uh, that your word is living and active, and it uh, cuts to the core. Uh, it exposes joint and marrow, places that we need to grow and change. Areas of weakness, areas in our lives that we don't look as much like you as we need to. And we pray that by your grace, you would be causing us to grow. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for each person here. Help them this week to be growing in patience, purity, potency, and peacemaking with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.